Hi, we are the University of New Mexico IM Chiefs. Welcome to Lamar. Nothing to do with your medication list. And everything to do with the morning after afternoon report. Where we talk about the clinical pearls in afternoon report format. Welcome to Morning After Afternoon Report, the grand finale of Season 2. Sharky here. Reed. And Chi Wade over here. Today we have a special guest, the next year's uh, pre-chiefs, Sarah Cordova. Hi, everyone. Today's case is Crawl from Childhood Ouch. Why don't you take it away, Taraja? So we have a 33-year-old patient, Spanish-speaking only, no primary care provider. Comes in with sudden-onset weakness as well as abdominal pain. Weakness extends to bilateral lower extremities. Says it was first appreciated upon waking up for work the morning of presentation. There was some difficulty coughing, uh, inability to get ready for work due to both instability and weakness. The patient had to crawl to their car just to get to the emergency room. Now, no fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting. Besides the abdominal pain, no other pain. And then also no recent travel or outdoor activities. As far as the rest of some of the review of systems goes, there's no dysuria, frequency, or hematuria. The appetite remains unchanged, and the patient's tolerating PO just fine. There's no paresthesias, weight loss, or a decrease in the lean muscle mass. Now, the patient says that they had a similar episode with exercise when they were nine years old, and that episode spontaneously resolved two three hours after the symptoms first came on. At that time, they were never evaluated, just sort of forgot about it. And then the other interesting thing is the older brother has had a similar event that was treated in the emergency room, but the but that older brother was discharged home the same day. The only other notable thing is that the patient was taken to the EDRU due to a syncopal episode, but this was after blood was drawn for labs. So as far as past medical history goes, the only thing notable is that the patient was noted to have hypokalemia one time during their childhood. They've had no surgeries in the past. And as far as social history goes, they don't smoke tobacco and they've never used any drugs, no injection drug use. And then as far as alcohol use goes, it's described as occasional. This patient lives in Las Lunas, is married, and has two daughters. Their occupation is working at a construction site. As far as family history goes, besides what was already noted in the beginning of this presentation, that they have a brother with a similar episode and hypokalemia, there's no other family history. The patient's not on any medications. And so let's jump to the physical exam. Upon evaluation, the vitals are normal. Physical exam shows a normal bulk and tone throughout without any obvious deformity. There is noted minimal resistance upon flexion and extension of both bilateral lower extremities. The strength is anywhere from three to four out of five, and perhaps a little bit more on the right side than the left side, meaning the right is a little stronger than the left. Throughout the body, the reflexes are all zero out of two, so no reflexes were elicited. The rest of the exam is normal. Okay, let's jump into the labs. Patient has a completely normal CBC. As far as their basic metabolic panel goes, the potassium is 1.8 and creatinine is 1.8. Their urine analysis shows a large amount of blood, but the RBC count is 1. Remember that less than 4 is normal. Some imaging is done. There is a x-ray of the lumbar spine, which is completely normal. 
And then as far as special diagnostic testing goes, an EKG is done and it shows a first degree AV block, but is otherwise normal. All right, well, this is a very interesting case presentation. As you can see, the patient had kind of weakness and some paresis kind of progressing towards paralysis, which can be seen in hypokalemia especially severe hypokalemia such as this patient had. And as you can see, their potassium of 1.8 is very low. Actually, it's much lower than you would expect to see because usually the kidney is an excellent organ at preserving levels of potassium in the blood. Kind of finally, I wanted to point out, you know, the relation between the large blood seen on the UA. You know, it's bizarre. You wouldn't think this patient uh, for any reason is having blood in his urine, but if you notice his right red cell count of only one, as well as the the creatinine of 1.8 points towards something, you may have heard of rhabdomyolysis, uh, which can, just as the trivia point, be seen in very low potassium levels. Specific what level, read? Less than 2.5 is where rhabdomyolysis can occur. And less than 2 is where ascending paralysis with respiratory failure can occur. Generally, if the potassium level is not that low, what kind of symptoms do you see from hypokalemia, Reed? You would see generalized weakness and malaise. It is very important to note, however, that the uh, severity of symptoms is not only related to the level of hypokalemia, but very importantly, also related to the acuity of the drop in in potassium levels. So looking at a potassium of 1.8, what are some of the etiologies we should think about? So when I think of hypokalemia, first you have to identify um, what is hypokalemia. So um, the serum potassium level is less than 3.5. And there's a couple of different etiologies that I think of. One is pseudo-hypokalemia. The second is intracellular shifts. And then there's inadequate potassium intake, which is actually pretty rare. And then there's also excessive potassium loss. What do you mean by pseudo-hypokalemia? So pseudo-hypokalemia is caused by the uptake of potassium by lots of cells in the test tube from leukemia. And as far as transcellular shifts of potassium, it's anything um, that can cause alkalosis in the blood. So that can be either metabolic alkalosis or respiratory alkalosis. And then when I think of decreased total body potassium, I think of either decreased intake or increased losses. So as far as decreased intake goes, this is pretty uncommon, like I said before. The kidneys can reduce urine potassium excretion to less than 20 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period. As far as losses, this is usually done by renal losses or extra renal losses. Hey, Sharkey, how do we start evaluating this hypokalemia? As with most diagnoses, history and physical are the gold standard and they tell you so much. Looking at their medications, if they've been vomiting, if they've had diarrhea, their blood pressure, it can tell you so much more than any lab value. So your history is so much more important. Always double check the medications. Diuretics can have an effect on potassium. So can a lot of your mineral corticoids affecting your blood pressure. So read it. Once we determine that it's excessive potassium loss, what would we do next? Well, your first step is to look at the potassium in the urine. The main goal is to determine if your kidney is functioning well or not. The things you can look at are a spot urine, urine potassium levels over 24 hours, or the potassium to creatinine level in the urine. Specifically, 
if the spot urine is less than 20 milliequivalents per liter, if the 24-hour urine is less than 20 milliequivalents, or if the urine potassium to creatinine ratio is less than 13, then you know your kidney is working appropriately and you most likely have a GI loss of potassium. So just to remind you, if the potassium is low, it's probably not the kidney. It's GI losses. If, however, your levels of potassium in the urine are above all of those, then most likely you have a renal loss of potassium. And so that's where things get more complicated. Okay, so what if the urine potassium is high? What do we do next? So if your urine potassium is high, so this is basically telling you excessive potassium loss is due to renal etiology. So the next step is surprisingly simple. Blood pressure, blood pressure, and blood pressure. Okay, so if you have a high blood pressure, this suggests that uh, this may be hormonally driven. Specifically, we're talking about raining or non-raining hormonal uh, driven process. If your blood pressure, however, is normal or low, you're thinking about acidosis or alkalosis driven process may or may not cause volume depletion. So Reed, what happens if the blood pressure is high? If the blood pressure is high, you have to investigate the hormones. So the hormones we're talking about are renin and aldosterone. There's pretty much three main combinations you can have. You can have a low renin with a low aldosterone. That tells you that there's something such as congenital adrenal hyperplasia, Cushing syndrome that's kind of driving the hypertension, and the potassium loss. If you have a low renin with a normal to high aldosterone, you're mostly thinking something like primary hyperaldosteronism. The third option is you have a high renin. For In this case, you're thinking about malignant hypertension or some other uh, process that's causing your renin-aldosterone axis to go haywire. So Reed, what if the blood pressure is normal or low? What's the next step? Well, at this point, really the differential hinges on whether you have a metabolic alkalosis or acidosis in addition to the hypokalemia. If you have an acidosis, then the common diagnoses would include renal tubular acidosis or DKA. If you have an alkalosis, there's an additional step. You have to check the urine chloride. If the urine chloride is high, the differential includes things such as diuretics, magnesium deficiency, and some other syndromes such as Barter and Geidelman's. If the chloride is low, you're thinking about vomiting, NG suction, kind of GI-related issues. So the reason you're checking urine chloride is because the urine chloride is sort of like a surrogate marker for the volume status of the patient. If the chloride is low, that means the patient is most likely volume contracted. And so if the urine chloride is high, then they're not. Usually in a patient, you would check the urine sodium to measure volume status. But in this case, we're talking about patients with a metabolic alkalosis, which throws off the sodium numbers. And so we use chloride instead. Thank you so much for going through that uh, extensive workup for figuring out how to figure out the process behind the hypokalemia. But now I'm really curious, how do we manage this once we actually figured it out? Okay, so to correct the hypokalemia, first things first, you have to replete the magnesium if the magnesium is also low. Remember, potassium follows magnesium. Next thing, 
if the hypokalemia is severe, you're at risk of arrhythmias, so you got to replete the potassium ASAP. That means IV, of course, you can only do 20 milliliter equivalents an hour. If you need to put in a central line so you can do it a little faster, then great. And then if you have mild symptoms, so we're talking about a potassium of 2.5 to 3.5, you can get away with oral potassium replacement as well. Now, long-term management, if the person has normal kidney function, but they keep having this recurrent significant hypokalemia, consider potassium-sparing diuretics. That was riveting. So now that we know what we're doing, what happened to our patient? I really, really want to know. Oh, right. The patient. Well, okay. So we've talked so much about hypokalemia. So this patient actually ended up having familial hypokalemic periodic paralysis. So this is actually a diagnosis of exclusion, first of all. And then in this patient, we think that it was actually prompted by a recent viral upper respiratory infection. So the patient was treated with aggressive potassium replacement, and the symptoms resolved like this, with immediate return of normal motor function and strength. Patient was discharged home with oral potassium replacement. And then we, of course, coordinated a new patient visit to establish with the primary care provider and encourage the patient to consider additional genetic workup, given that the patient has children. That's so cool. Did you know that in men of Asian and Mexican descent, when they have untreated hyperthyroidism, they can actually get a hypoclamic periodic paralysis. And all you have to do to treat it is treat the hyperthyroidism and it resolves. Gang, it's been real. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks to everyone for listening to us. I hope you learned something this year. We hope we didn't bore you too much. I know I wasn't boring. I just want to take this opportunity to thank everyone that has been involved in podcast. Reed, Sharky, Taraja, and specific Lloyd. Unfortunately, Lloyd is unable to be present here today to record with us. But we do have his successor, Dr. Cordova, uh, taking over the primary care chief position. We're going to have Dr. Cordova to speak a few words for him. Thank you all for inviting me here today. It's been really fun. And I know Lloyd would have wanted to be here today. Just to be clear, Lloyd is doing very well, and then he will start his fellowship very soon. Chief out. Chief in. This episode was brought to you by Lloyd, Chiwei, Sharky, Taraja, and Reed. We hope you enjoyed it and take home some clinical pearls.